Good morning to all of you. I'm glad you're here this morning. Welcome um, to those of you in person and those of you online. Um, it's already been stated, but I'll state it again. I'm not Pete. And I'm going to stand this morning because I'm too short to get on the stool. And I just feel steadier that way. So if you don't mind, I'll just stand and fidget. Also, one thing I would say, as a former pastor who's been in Pete's position, you know, going to be gone, needs to get somebody else to fill in, um, called pastors have um, a particular challenge in that case. Um, they want to make sure to get someone who will keep people as much as they can engaged for the worship hour, but not somebody who's too good so that people start wishing for the grass to be greener. So our challenge this morning, or my challenge this morning, is to be just good enough. So when Pete gets back, if he asks you about your experience this morning, say, it was just good enough. It was just good enough. Anyway, I am glad that you're here, and I'm grateful to be able to fill in for Pete this morning. So, We are continuing our series based on uh, Bruce Epperly's book, Simplicity, Spirituality, and Service. Um, and my teaching premise this morning, I'm just going to tell you up front, is that creating peace, that's the title of this week's chapter, if you're following along in the book, creating peace is costly, that we can't simply wish and hope for the kind of deep peace that he writes about and that is so elusive in our world, but that actually it is a significant investment that may even cost us our lives. What I hope to accomplish in our time together is to name four costs of peace um, and to talk about how they build on each other and work together. And finally, to challenge us not only um, to count the costs, but to be willing to invest and put ourselves on the line for true peace. My hope is to weave together a few different things. Um, definitely the book that we've been reading, the Bruce Epperly text that you're all familiar with, but also during this Black History Month, um, I have been doing some additional reading that um, I haven't been able to um, shake loose. Um, they are gripping me, and reading them at the same time as reading the Epperly book has been um, really amazing, and I hope to be able to share some of that. So we'll, I'll share some ideas from James Cone in his work entitled The Cross and the Lynching Tree, as well as um, Cole Arthur Riley's Black Liturgies, Prayers, Poems, and Meditations for Staying Human. Don't we need help staying human, right? So this is the tall order that I have set for myself this morning. Um, We'll see how it goes. Let's start with the gospel. Hear these words from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Then Jesus began to his disciples, the human one must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and be killed, and then after three days rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. And alongside that biblical text, here's the quote from this week's chapter. In the Epperly book. We have gained the world, but we are in danger of losing not only our souls, but also the lives of future generations. Every morning's news testifies to our alienation from one another. Nations threaten war, racism puts national unity at risk, and incivility marks our daily social media activity and political action. We need peace. The peace that comes from within and calms and reconciles a troubled and divided planet. Did you all hear the intersections there? I have known for a month or so that I was going to be here this morning, and so had been reading the gospel text for weeks, and then this week, or last week actually, when I opened the Epperly chapter 8 for this week, and I read that quote, I could not help but see those intersections. We have gained the world, but are in danger of losing our souls and the lives of future generations. Today I want to talk about our willingness to set aside ourselves, to lose our prestige, our power, our privileges, our possessions, our preferences, and possibly even our lives in order to find the life that Jesus talks about and the deep peace that is shalom. Putting those two things alongside each other, um, four things struck me, and so I've just labeled them this morning, um, the cost of peace. Um, so if you're one of those people that likes to track and see how much four things, and you'll know how we're doing and how your lunch reservation is up and all sorts of things. So first truth or the first cost I want to talk about is hearing the truth. And if you're like me, perhaps you just heard Jack Nicholson's voice in your head as I spoke that. You can't handle the truth, right? And darn it, isn't that often the case? 
The truest truths are rarely pleasant or easy to hear. In the gospel reading this morning, uh, Jesus drops a truth bomb on Peter, who doesn't appreciate it or understand it. He says the human one, that is Jesus, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise from the dead. And instead of hearing it, Peter rebels against it. He refuses to accept it. No way, Jesus. Nope, nope, nope. No can do. I won't have it. It can't be. And if that first truth bomb wasn't enough, Jesus drops another one, responding to Peter's outrage. Peter, dude, you are getting in the way of God's good purposes. Either get on board or get behind me. And that's the way the truth is a lot of times, isn't it? It's difficult to see because we have our own ideas, like Peter, about the ways in which we'd like to see the world. We see the world through these lenses of ours, and when we're faced with things that don't agree or don't jive with the way we see the world, things that contradict our own presuppositions, our own biases, our own blind spots, we recoil, or we reject, we double down, and we, we hold tighter to that which we know. It takes these sort of in-your-face moments to wake us up to the deeper truths that are beyond our immediate sight. Thinking about that, I found it very fitting that the 2024 theme for Black History Month is the arts. James Cone, in the book I mentioned earlier, writes this. Artists recognized that no real reconciliation could occur between blacks and whites without telling the painful and redeeming truths about their life together. Artists to see things we do not want to look at because they make us uncomfortable with ourselves and the world we have created. Black artists are prophetic voices whose calling requires them to speak truth to power. More than anyone, artists demonstrate our understanding of the need to represent the beauty and the terror of our people's experience. We need people in our lives like Jesus, like artists and poets and writers and musicians and filmmakers who are willing to risk themselves to tell the truth in ways we can see and hear and understand. That's why the artists on our wall of witnesses are so important. These are the prophets who use their particular media to get our attention, to wake us up. So this morning, we, we thank God for truth-tellers like Billie Holiday, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, Nina Simone, Tupac, Tyler Perry, Ryan Coogler, 
Amanda Gorman, and so many more if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. So there's the hearing the truth, but we can't just get stuck at hearing the truth. The second cost I'm calling this morning decentering the self. If you grew up in church like I did, then this morning's gospel text, you probably heard it said um, or translated as deny the self. How many of you? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I choose the term decentering this morning because decentering does not seek to eradicate or kind of push down the self. But instead, to me, it, it opens the self when we're willing to decenter our perspectives. We make room to center the perspectives of others. And the text, the biblical text, makes clear how important that is. If we don't do the work of decentering ourselves, then we become like Peter, insisting on our own way and our own understanding. And we'll find ourselves at cross purposes to God. Enemies of the gospel, even. That's really what Jesus is getting at here when he calls Peter Satan and says to get behind him. Anybody here want to be enemies of the gospel? Anyone? Me either. I don't want that at all. I, like you, I'm assuming, want to be a vehicle through which my neighbors can come to know divine love. I want to be a vehicle for shalom in my community. And I assume that you want those things too. And to do that, we've got to do this decentering work. Epperly writes about it this way. Although our theology, spiritual practices, and forms of worship differ, we are united as God's beloved children. Speaking of Francis and Claire, uh, their peace-oriented style of relationship invites us to give others space to grow, withhold unnecessary critique and judgment, recognize our own relational limitations, well-being of holy others on their terms, not our own. Trusting their lives to God's direction. Sounds a lot like center. Epperly Francis, Francis being open to people of other religious traditions. There's a little um, kind of story about visiting with a Muslim sultan. Um, and I think that's great. I think that decentering work can help us be um, open to people from other religious traditions, other cultural and ethnic groups, other linguistic groups. I also think it doesn't hurt to be open and decenter ourselves sometimes with our siblings. Seems like the Christian 
is polarized and divided right now, and that it might be a really important and critical time for us to listen to one another and to, see, to understand the perspectives of people who have different perspectives than us. And what better time to do that also during Black History Month as we stretch ourselves in that way. I want to highlight kind of one quick difference among, I just want to think about our decentering among our Christian siblings. So on for a moment, briefly, different theologies of the cross we might be open in this area. I'm not going to atonement theory weeds because that's where Pete thrives. And so um, after this little this little section, um, you can you can take it up with Pete. <laughs> I'll stir the pot and then we'll see what happens. Um, so let's consider um, kind of two maybe main perspectives on the cross and then I consider a one. Um, so here's one perspective. Jesus died for us. That substitutionary um, perspective that we've talked about before, right? Much of Christianity subscribes to kind of this thought pattern about humanity's sin and the requirement for an atoning sacrifice and all of those things. So there's one perspective. Jesus died with us. There's a difference between for and with, right, for you linguistics people. And this sort of general approach represents like a solidarity perspective, right? We think about God who was so willing to live among and with humanity that God would even subject God's self to the laws of um, human nature and even be willing to die, right? solidarity with humanity. And then the third perspective um, I especially want us to think about in light of our learning during Black History Month, and that is Jesus died like us. So Jesus died for us. Jesus died with us. James Cone talks about Jesus died like us and how important that perspective is in black theology. For our black Christian siblings, the cross and with it the blood and the violence and the shame are everything. Cone reminds us that in the black church tradition, the cross is a symbol of solidarity and liberation. Because black people who have suffered, especially in our country, needlessly through slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, and now mass incarceration, find hope in the cross. Because Jesus knows their pain. Because Jesus knows suffering because Jesus has been lynched and mocked and made a public spectacle. And I think it's important for us to understand that, 
especially those of us that are uncomfortable with the violence of the cross, uncomfortable with some of the you know, different atonement perspectives. If we want to understand our black Christian siblings, then we need to understand that perspective. This died us. It's important. As fathers, one can recognize that although theologies worship may differ, we are united as God's children. And if we want to be those for affiliation, we can do some work with our own as an experience. Peter's is still our life. Third cost. Practicing radical empathy. Some of you are sitting there going, I didn't hear any of those words in the gospel text or in any of those quotes that she shared. Where's she getting that? You're right, they're not there, but I think that they're inferred, and I hope to make a case for that. And I think that this piece, this cost of radical empathy, um, can help us get from the decentering the self to the fourth thing that I'm not going to tell you yet. I think we need this, and I feel like empathy is the bridge, so hang with me for just a minute. In our Epperly chapter, he writes, in experiencing Jesus' pain, Francis sanctified his own pain and diminishment. He realized that nothing could separate him from the suffering and joyful love of God. And in Cone's book, um, actually Cone is quoting Langston Hughes here. Um, Hughes um, says, I believe that anything which makes people think of existing evil conditions is worthwhile. Sometimes in order to attract attention, somebody must embody their ideas in sensational forms. So while neither one of these explicitly say empathy, in describing the experiencing of another's pain, so we talk about Francis experiencing the pain of Jesus, and embodying evil conditions, if we go to the, the Langston Hughes quote, they are pointing to the phenomenon of empathy, I believe. And if we are to grow up into Christ, if we're to keep becoming, in this process of becoming that we're all in, then we not only have to hear the truth and be able to decenter our self-centeredness, we also need to learn how to practice radical empathy. I don't know if y'all know this, but if you Google empathy, you get a lot of stuff. Um, there are whole schools developing programs around empathy right now. 
um, Forbes magazine um, published an article in 2021, I think. Um, yeah, 2021. And the title of the article was, Empathy is the most important leadership skill, according to the research. Empathy. And the Stanford empathy researcher, there is such a thing, an empathy researcher, Jamil Zaki describes empathy like this, the psychological superglue that connects people and undergirds cooperation and kindness. Anybody think we need more cooperation? more kindness, we need more empathy. I think personally that Jesus was the ultimate example of an empathetic human. I believe his healing ministry was rooted in deep empathy. Many of his parables, the stories he told, reveal profound compassion, often coming from places we don't expect and extended to people that we don't expect, but still profound compassion. And we see Jesus weeping over death and being moved by the crowds, right? So if our goal is to be more like Jesus, to be growing up into Christ, and to be co-creators with God of a world where goodness and love and shalom abound, then cultivating empathy ought to be part of our process, I think. And there's good news on that front, because if you do that Google search, you'll find that there are actually things you can do to, be, to grow your empathy. I'm just going to toss a few out, because I think they go with our study. Be willing to grow. Isn't that interesting that, like, the first move that we talk about at Crosswalk in, uh, around here is, like, stretching, right? So be willing to grow. All the stretching that Pete makes us do is good for us. Expose yourself to differences. So spend time with people who don't think like you or look like you or come from the same background as you. The empathy research says read fiction, which I find interesting, and I put in parentheses. And also poetry, autobiographies, memoirs. Look at art and film. Listen to music people that you don't listen to, or maybe you've read some of the works from our wall of witnesses or listened to music by them that you've never heard before. Keep doing that. Pam encouraged us last week in the meditation time to look at some films made by black filmmakers. Get curious, ask questions, and of course, learn to know yourself. Know where those biases are that you have, the things that get in the way of your empathy, your understanding. The more you're aware, the more empathy you can develop. And I think when we have sufficiently developed this ability to experience the embodied pain of others, then we are truly becoming. And unfortunately, that's where it really gets tough. And this is the fourth cost of creating peace. Suffering in solidarity. I think the Cone and Riley books both have powerful things to say about solidarity. 
so I'll share them quickly. They write, Humanity's salvation is available only through our solidarity with the crucified people in our midst. The cross is impossible to embrace unless one is standing in solidarity with those who are powerless. And that one is actually pretty easy to hear. This one is tougher, I think. In this season, Lent, we choose solidarity with all who are suffering. The displaced, the abused, the oppressed and neglected, we, we remind ourselves, and here is where it gets really, really tough. We remind ourselves that presence is not solidarity. That one stung a little bit. You mean that march that I went to was not solidarity? Presence is not solidarity. Knowledge is not solidarity. Eek. So all the books I've been reading in Black History Month, that's not solidarity? No, she says, solidarity is the kind of unity that costs us something. The kind of unity that costs us something. And there is no internet search or formula for this one, friends. For each of us to take this step in our becoming, this step in growing as initiators and cultivators and creators of peace, we've got to be open to the Spirit. Have eyes open to see and ears open to hear, hands willing to work, feet willing to go. You, you only in conversation with the Spirit can discern the cost and degree of suffering that you are personally willing to bear on the path to peace. But there's good news, and the good news is we don't do it alone. This last quote that I'll share from Epperly says this. Fresh spirituality, that's what we seek. Fresh spirituality, the faith that is ever new and ever beginning again, is a constant process of letting go and dying and rising with Christ. The peace of Christ enables us to face conflict, threat, and death knowing our lives and all creation are in God's care. We are indeed in God's care. And we can trust God through the trials of this life and even through death to life everlasting. As we get ready to close here very shortly, um, I invite you to take a posture of prayerful openness. Um, I brought a video, which has um, proved to be kind of tricky this morning, but we're going to give it a try. It didn't work at all in first service, so there you go. Ma try to manage expectations, right? Um, these are the words of Howard Thurman, and in a moment, I will play them, or they'll play them back there in just a moment, but not quite yet. Um, and it's a great prayer, I feel like, um, to get us ready for the prayer of St. Francis. When I came across it um, last week, 
it felt so similar to Francis's prayer to me and yet different. So it's almost an invitation for God to open us and for God to open God's self to us so that we might actually be able to pray the St. Francis prayer faithfully. So I'm looking back there at the booth. Do we think the video's gonna work? It's not gonna work. Wow, all that hype. Manage expectations. So it's just, it's a really beautiful prayer. So I'll just tell you this. Go home and Google Howard Thurman, open unto me. And again, it's just this, uh, this lovely um, prayer about opening oneself and asking God to open God's self so that we might do this work and be faithful. So since the video didn't work, We'll just go ahead and um, fast forward. I'm going to invite you um, today. Jenny spoke it over us during meditation time, but I want to invite you um, to say it aloud with me as we prepare um, to dismiss from this place. I'm really grateful that you were here this morning. Will you pray the prayer of St. Francis with me? Lord, Make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thanks again for being here this week. Have a good one.